Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. Our whole team hopes you're having a relaxing and fun summer. We're doing our best. I'm Peter Sabota. In the second of a two-part podcast, our guests, Dr. Deb Ortega, Dr. Ashley Hanna, and Dr. Badia Hafaji, continue their discussion chronicling the experiences of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, and examine the history of U.S. policies addressing their needs. Our guests address common myths that characterize our popular and policy discussions about immigrants and explore how these policies affect life in our communities. They conclude with recommendations related to the skills needed by social workers to provide services to these clients and communities. Deb Ortega, PhD, is professor at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work. There, she is the founding director of the Latino Center for Community Engagement and Scholarship a consortium of interdisciplinary faculty dedicated to creating and advancing knowledge that gives voice to the history, politics, culture, and legacies of Latino communities. She teaches courses on issues of social inequality, and her work focuses on the consequences of structural inequality across different systems, client groups, and diverse communities. She is the past president of the Association of Latino Social Work Educators and the co-editor-in-chief of Ophelia, Journal of Women and Social Work. She is proud to be a first-generation Latina college student. Ashley Hanna, PhD, is assistant professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Nevada, Reno. Her primary areas of expertise are behavioral and mental health, clinical social work practice, school-based interventions, racial and ethnic disparities, and the impact of immigration policies and practices on Latino individuals, families, and the community. Dr. Hanna's research is concentrated on structural inequalities in the United States. In addition to continued research in the area of immigration, her present research interests also include disproportionality and disparities in the education system related to discipline, academic success, and socio-emotional well-being, as well as effective practices to increase equitable outcomes. Badia Hafaji recently completed her PhD from the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver. Her research examines the enduring impact of trauma, self-sufficiency, and resiliency, including the ways that refugee policy, institutional cultures, and individual attitudes combine to negatively impact women refugees. Our guests were interviewed by her own Dr. Uksu Kim, Associate Professor and Co-Director of Immigrant and Refugee Research Institute here at the UB School of Social Work. They spoke in March of 2016. Can you discuss some of the myths that often used to describe immigrants and the research that addresses these myths? Yeah, this is Ashley again. So when discussing myths about immigrants, again, it's so important to keep things in historical context. And I'll keep saying that because we see 
recurring themes and recurring laws and views on immigrants throughout history in the United States. And like Dr. Ortega mentioned earlier, is really the way we speak about immigrants today and the way immigrants are portrayed in political discourse in the media, really there's no reality to that. It's just rhetoric, and there's no truth behind a lot of the myths and stereotypes. So some current myths that you see and hear today that were present in the 1800s and have persisted over the last 200 years are that immigrants are invading or taking over the U.S., that immigrants are dangerous criminals, that immigrants don't integrate into the U.S., and that they're an economic burden. And so all you have to do is really flip on the TV today, and this Latino threat narrative is described by Chavez, you know, where immigrants are invading or taking over the United States. We're constantly seeing those images and hearing people speak like immigrants are invading the U.S. or taking over. And it's so important to use critical thinking skills when, whenever we're confronted with new information or information that we just assume to be true. So the reality is, you know, upon taking a step back and gaining some perspective, is that immigrants aren't taking over the U.S., we are the U.S. Immigrants are part of our social fabric and who we are as a nation, as the nation of United States of America. So the country we know as the U.S. today wouldn't exist if it weren't for immigrants. And just as the number of U.S. citizens has grown over time, so has the number of immigrants. But that doesn't mean that the percentage has changed. And in all reality, the percentage of immigrants that we have compared to U.S. citizen population is about the same now as it was in the 1900s. Literature says that it was approximately about immigrants made up about 15% of the total population in the early 1900s. That's about 13% today. Another common myth that is talked about is that immigrants are dangerous criminals. And so we hear this all the time again in these presidential primaries, particularly, and I hate to repeat the name, but as Donald Trump is speaking about immigrants, saying that Mexican immigrants, and I quote him, are bringing drugs, bringing crime, and that they're rapists. There's no literature to substantiate that. It's simply false. Immigrants in general are actually less likely to commit crimes than native-born U.S. citizens, and unauthorized immigrants in particular are even less likely to commit crimes than those that have permanent legal immigrant status. And there is some random research that does state that immigrants have higher tendencies or a higher likelihood to commit crimes. But it's interesting because, again, when looking with a critical eye at the data and the research, you can find that there are very flawed methods. For example, by going to jails and counting the number of immigrants who are in jails when, in fact, the jail is an immigrant detention center. So it skews the numbers, making it look like there are high percentages of immigrants in our jail systems who have committed dangerous crimes, and that's not the case. Even government sources discuss about immigrant detention and deportation, saying that the aim is to get rid of dangerous criminal immigrants, 
but the government itself has said that that is not what's happening and people who are being detained and deported oftentimes have not committed crimes and definitely the majority are not committing any dangerous crimes. So that's also another false myth that continues to be out there. Also, this idea that immigrants don't integrate into the United States society is an interesting one because we're a culture of immigrants and it's a huge part of who we are in the U.S. One thing or reason why I think this claim might be made a lot has to do with language. And yes, it's true that immigrants speak other languages than English, but many children of immigrants are often bilingual, speaking, for example, if you're talking about Latino immigrants, both English and Spanish. However, by the third generation, most descendants of immigrants prefer to speak English. And in fact, literature specific to English language development indicates that by the third generation, just 5% of Latino students speak English with difficulty. So again, that myth, really there's no truth to that. And in terms of this idea that immigrants are an economic burden, again, overwhelming literature says that this is not the case. This fear that immigrants will be a social or economic burden, like is the case with the other myths I described, really dates back to colonial times. So it's been perpetuated throughout history, but there's really no truth to it. The reality is that immigrants are an essential part of the U.S. economy, and throughout history, immigrants have provided inexpensive labor to sustain businesses and the needs of U.S. citizens by keeping the cost to businesses down and the profits up. So again, this benefits the dominant society. Also significant literature, and that's including literature from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the U.S. Congressional Budget Office, indicates that immigrants including unauthorized immigrants, benefit the U.S. economy. And even the president has spoken about this and the benefits of immigration to the United States. Do you have fact sheet, something like that, with that? It's like a miss and the debunking the miss kind of. Do you have it? Did you develop that? There are a lot of actually fact sheets out there with information, but then for my dissertation, I went back and I researched a lot of them <laughs> to, to be able to look at, at it because it was especially concerning some of the, I think his name's Camerata, that has done all this research. So I was like, wow, oh, look, it does look like immigrants are, you know, committing more crimes in these areas. And then when I really started to critically take a look at the methodology, it was all very much skewed and biased. And so these reports are going out from anti-immigrant, you know, think tanks like FAIR, and it's using his work and his research. So especially to someone who's not in academia or who doesn't look at research, so to just for example, my brothers and sisters, if they were to read that, that would look valid, it would look like good data, and it's used as propaganda and a scare tactic. So, yeah, it's it's really scary what's out there right now. So, so far, you discussed immigration policies and rhetorics in the United States. In which way, how do they affect our communities? 
So there's it's like, and let me count the ways, right? <laughs> in terms of a response to that question, Ashley Body and I have been involved in research projects together and separately. And so I'm going to talk about three of these research projects that really talk about what's happening in our community. So one project was actually came out from Ashley asking people in Denver about what it was like to be an immigrant. That was one qualitative study. We have another qualitative study the three of us have engaged in that was about how immigration detention and increased policy enforcement affected people. And then a third study I was involved with, Lisa Martinez, who's a sociologist here at the University of Denver, and Maria Salazar, who is a scholar in education. We asked the question of young adult Latinos, what made them successful in education? And even though that last research project seems like it doesn't really fit with the other two because we weren't asking specifically about immigration, immigration policies, the effects of immigration, mirrored the other two qualitative research projects in what they talked about. So they talked about these things that I described as coded racial narratives, how people perceive them based on what is said about them. For instance, we had one respondent who talked about how he worked. He was working. They did a verification on a Social Security number of another employee, and then what happened was the employee just didn't show up the next day, right? So the person was working. They weren't authorized to be here. And so when they checked his Social Security number, he knew there was going to be a problem. But the rhetoric that was talked about from the other workers about who that person was was very dehumanizing. So they talked about him being, you know, uh, breaking the law and how horrible immigrants like that are, even though he showed up regularly for work. You know, he was young. He was like the respondent we were interviewing, which is he was brought here by his family when he was, you know, five or six. And so the consequence is that the respondent that was in our study didn't feel like he wanted to ever create relationships with people where he worked because he didn't know when he was going to have to disappear because of the checking of the Social Security number. This was before DACA happened. Once DACA happened, there was still the same problem, right? So for people who were eligible and could apply for a deferred action for childhood arrivals, the rhetoric is still the same. They still feel under threat. And actually, if you think about ways that it affects everyone, different policies like not having immigrants who don't have, who are not authorized to be here, not having them be able to have access to driver's licenses is, is to me one of the most apparent policies. It's one of those policies where you're thinking, wow, I am so afraid of somebody else that I don't care how much it hurts me to try to hurt them, right? So in many states, people who are not authorized to be here can't get a driver's license. If you can't get a driver's license, that means you can't get insurance, right? Driving insurance. So if you get in an accident, then you're uninsured. And people have to drive. I mean, I lived in Kansas for eight years. Let me tell you about having to drive, right? There are circumstances in which people must drive. And accidents are random, right? So essentially, 
a policy like no driver's license makes every person unsafe in their community. So in that sense, we actually have made ourselves less safe because we're afraid of the people that are created from the myths that Ashley was just talking about, right? There's also this increase of stress, we know, for citizen and non-citizens alike. We have to keep reminding ourselves that people who are not citizens in the United States live in families where their cousins, aunts, uncles, a parent, or some of their children are citizens, right? So what was apparent in all three studies is the worry for the safety in their communities of their family members, regardless of their citizenship status, so that we have citizen children who are afraid of the police, and they're afraid of the police because they have been in a situation in which maybe a family member or a friend's family member have been picked up and put in jail and then not seen again. We had a situation here in Colorado in which the safety resource officer, which is like like, like a, a policeman who's placed in schools, they were using gang money to have him co-trained with ICE, right, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So he would, at after school hours, nighttime, go on home rate into people's homes in, his, in the area in which his school was. They would pick up family members. They would put them in immigration detention. And the next day, the children in those homes would have to be at school with this person, right, who was supposed to be keeping their school safe. So that we're really creating a situation in which people, regardless if they have citizenship or not, are concerned, right, about their own safety, whether they're going to be targets of immigration. My friends, my white friends actually kind of laugh because I never leave my house without my wallet. If I walk out the door and, oops, I might have forgotten, I turn around immediately. Because I know at some level I actually am at risk myself because of how I look. If I can't prove who I am, that I also could at least be have complications in my life be detained, have to explain about who I am, whether I'm a citizen or not, right? So these kinds of things affect everyone. Ultimately, you have to think about who's in our families. What we've also seen is that U.S. citizen children, their parents are returned to Mexico. Once they finish high school, they're put in this position about having to choose. Do they do they choose to go back to Mexico with their families? I'm sure many people who believe in these racist policies would be happy that citizen children are returning to Mexico. So they return to Mexico is one option. Leaving their non-citizen siblings in the United States knowing they might not see them. So they return to Mexico unprepared to function in a country in which they have not really lived. They have been educated in the United States. While they're Spanish speakers, they aren't really educated to read and write at a professional level. We had several people in in one of the studies that we looked at that were very high-achieving students, and they really struggled with this decision about, do I stay? I have these rights, and do I stay? I was the hope and dream of my family. 
my family that I can't actually even see. Maybe on Skype I can see them, right? Who, if my dad gets sick, as a citizen I can go down there, knowing that they might, if they have the money to go down, to be with their family if they're sick. But their non-citizen siblings can never go back and see their families if they have then families here. It's like this, this wall where we completely separate families. The other thing that's happening is it actually has been an eye-opening experience for some citizen children who thought that it was a protection for them and their family. Like having citizenship meant something really important. So when their parents got deported and they realized they had no access to the decision makers about what happened to their family member and they were deported anyways, it actually recreated lots of depression and anxiety and anger about this thing they thought was special that turned out to be something that protected only them potentially, but didn't protect them from the grief and loss from their family members. If you believe the way that Ashley, Badia, and I believe that dehumanization of anyone allows for dehumanization of others, in the end, something like the immigration policies that we have that are catch-22 for people, that don't take into account their lived experience, you know, when they're brought to the United States as children, or the fact that we use immigrant people for cheap labor, right, which is is the rhetoric that we talk about, right? Like, oh, we should have immigrants here because we need them to support our economy, regardless of the fact that they're experiencing these horrible, this horrible violence. In some violence and poverty, at some level in reaction to some of our involvements in, say, like the Civil War in El Salvador or NAFTA. We don't look at our own contribution to the detriment of their countries, but we blame them for being here, or we acknowledge that we want them here because, frankly, we don't want to pay you know, for the products that they're engaged in producing at a rate of what it would cost to pay a citizen, right? That's often also the narrative. So in some ways, these issues around immigration policy and the rhetoric is really about fueling racism. We're all worse, actually, for the way that we are unconsciously affected by who we are told immigrants are. Another example would be just watching TV. I was in Texas, actually, recently, and I was watching the news, and there were several crimes that had been committed. But you know that what I saw was the crimes that were committed by people who were not authorized to be in the United States were sort of punctuated, right? Like, so burglary was committed by an illegal, undocumented Mexican. But when a white person committed a crime, it was just a crime. So there are all these ways that if we allow these policies, these rhetorics to go unchecked, we don't really recognize what they're doing to us as people, it becomes kind of absorbed and it affects the way that we see lots of different people, right? We become sort of unconscious in the way that racism, that ageism, homophobia drives our world and drives our thought process unchecked. 
I think that is one of the there's like individual ways that it affects our communities, but really ultimately everyone is affected by immigration policies. Even if you're in a small town where you say, oh, we don't have very many immigrants here, we're all affected by what we see on TV. We're all affected by how the media describes us. And it becomes absorbed into our belief system. So it sounds like immigration policies and rhetorics really affects every level of our lives. I think you mentioned here and there, but as our last question, I have to ask this question. What information or skills do social workers need to provide the services to clients and communities? Yeah, so this is Ashley again. I can speak to that a little bit. And I think it's important to keep this in context because one in four children is in an immigrant family. And those numbers are even higher for Latino families. So what that essentially means is social workers have had and will continue to have increased contact with Latino immigrant families and their children. Unfortunately, in general, not enough attention is given to this in the social work curriculum. And so social workers are often ill-prepared to effectively work with immigrant families, particularly those in Latino immigrant families. And I do think part of this is that disconnect where many social workers are white women. And so if the issues impacting Latinos or impacting immigrants or impacting Latino immigrant families is not only addressed in undergraduate and graduate schools of social work, but also throughout life in, in the field as a social worker and ongoing trainings there can be this disconnect that makes it very difficult to effectively work with immigrant families. So I think this question is very important. And the answer really, what it comes down to, is culturally responsive practice skills. That is what social workers need. And so we know that there's no end point that, hey, you have arrived and now you're culturally responsive. Just as we are continuing to grow and develop as human beings and this country of the United States is continuing to grow and develop, so must our skills and our social work skills, specifically our practice skills when it comes to being culturally responsive. So this isn't something that can just be addressed in academia, but needs to be actively addressed on an ongoing basis in clinical supervision and in outside trainings once social workers get into the field. This is also really important because generally speaking, social workers don't just stay in, you know, only work in hospitals for their entire lives or only work in schools, but there is this ability for social workers to move around and to practice in different settings. And so there might be additional skills needed based on that. In terms of culturally responsive practice, social work practitioners need to be aware of the heterogeneity, not only within the Latino community, but within the immigrant community. And even if you would break that down into the smaller group of the Latino immigrant community, that population is very heterogeneous. And there are numerous nuances between, for example, Latinos and U.S. Native families, or those who 
families where there's an authorized immigrant family member or mixed citizenship status families. So it's important for practitioners to be aware of these differences, and it's also important for practitioners to not make generalizations. So social workers need to have an awareness of how the U.S. citizenship and immigration status of family members might impact individuals differently, specifically levels of fear, the ability for a family to travel both domestically and internationally, and a family's understanding of the U.S. education system, their eligibility for social services, health care, educational scholarship, and other forms of aid, the ability for family members to get state identification and passports, and also how the citizenship or immigration status of family members might impact their view of the police or immigration officials and social workers for that matter. In addition to this need for increased awareness about the immigrant population, there's also a need for social workers to have an increased self-awareness, not only about their own biases, but also how they might be perceived by their clients based on both the client's social location, but also the practitioner's social location. And with that, practitioners need to be very aware of power dynamics and how being part of the dominant culture, so either being white or being a U.S. citizen, might impact the relationship when working with an immigrant family. And this really highlights the importance of taking time to build relationships. So kind of that old saying that you have to move slow to move fast, that that truly is important to Social workers need to take the time to build rapport and authentic relationships and to create an open and non-judgmental space when working with clients. I say that, but it's also important for social workers to be aware that once clients feel safe, they're going to be more likely to open up about struggles perhaps with immigration or talk about if somebody has an unauthorized immigrant family member. And I think one key thing that needs to be highlighted to all social workers is to never, ever, ever document the immigration status of a client or a client's family members. One of our goals as social workers is to keep families together or reunite families when they're separated. So by documenting that a family member is unauthorized, once that's written down, it really could be out of the social worker's hands if that information were to get into the wrong hands immigration officials could get involved. A family member might go to immigrant detention and then the the family would be in jeopardy of being separated. So that's a really important piece, logistical piece of good practice. And then the final thing I'd really like to highlight is ethical practice. And so culturally responsive and ethical practice also demands an awareness regarding the current political and social context of immigration. And I talk about awareness, but it's really not enough. To have ethical practice, you can't just stop at being aware of the injustices that happen. But social workers must be willing to reject and confront unjust policies, practices, and laws, whether those practices be found in their own organization, local community, the local government, state government, or federal government. And I think many times when new social workers are going into an organization, there might be policies and practices that 
they just decide to go along with. For example, writing down risk factors of clients. For example, oh, this client is dealing with issues of immigration. But again, that puts a family member in jeopardy by flagging them as dealing with immigration officials. So again, it's really important for social workers to think critically about their practice, about what they do, and how that might impact the clients that they serve. Thank you so much. It's been really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Drs. Deb Ortega, Ashley Hanna, and Badia Hafaji discuss the experiences of immigrants on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.